You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Now then, we're going to continue in our study this morning as worship in the Gospel of John. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We started studying the Gospel of John way back in September, and we've made it all the way through 11 chapters. It's taken us this long to get through these first 11 chapters because they're massive. The first 11 chapters are John's very weighty apologetic, or his defense, or his argument for the fact that Jesus Christ is the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He's taken 11 chapters to set up arguments, telling us that he is the word of God made flesh. He is creator God. He's eternally existing. He transforms water into wine. He cleared the temple. He healed people. He walked on water. He fed thousands. He calmed a storm. He did amazing things, said incredible things. He brought Lazarus back from the dead. 11 chapters to defend that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we finally get to turn the corner a little bit and go into chapter 12. It's a hinge chapter, and Lord willing, we're going to actually tackle the entire chapter this morning. The observant amongst you will notice that is 50 verses. We're going to do what the great Jerry Reed said. We've got a long way to go and a little time to get there. We're going to do what they say can't be done. Anytime I can quote Smoking the Bandit, it's a good Sunday. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, and we're going to do this differently. Typically, what I like to do is to preach inductively, meaning I'll give you the passage, sort of exposit it, explain it, and then I'll give a few concluding summary principles at the end. Not this time. This morning, we're going to do this rather straightforward, deductively, meaning propositionally, meaning I'm going to tell you the big idea, and then I'm going to give you eight supporting statements that support the big idea. So I want you to think of it like this. I'm going to give you the big idea, which is sort of like the hub of a wagon wheel. And then I'm going to give you eight spokes that support this center hub. Because I believe that John chapter 12 is trying to tell us something massively impactful for every one of our lives. So let me have your eyes for a second. I don't know what's going on in every one of your lives. But here's what I absolutely know with certainty. What you and I deal with most frequently is kinglessness. What every single one of us was made to have in our lives is a sovereign king, but we're murking. We don't like that notion. The last king we had was completely insane and a very bad man, and so we have shucked off that notion. But we were made to be kinged. We were made to have a king in our lives, someone who is good, someone who is the ultimate grown-up who always knows what to do because we are dangerously unqualified for that job despite all of our depravity is telling us that we can do it. All of our world, culture, and society is telling us that I am able to be the king of my own life and my experience and track record, not to mention the teaching of Scripture, says that that is a flaming wreckage about to happen. One of the primary issues in every single human heart is kinglessness. And so this morning, what John is going to tell us is our big idea that Jesus is the king I need. The first 11 chapters are written 
to declare and defend that Jesus is the Christ. The entire gospel of John is written, so that you will believe. What does belief look like? We're going to see it in chapter 12. And we're going to see that not only can I believe in him and on him, but he is the king that I need. You and I are desperate, whether we know it or acknowledge it or not, we are desperate for a king who is good to rule in our lives. What freedom, what rest, what peace to know that there is a good king who is capable of everything and he knows better than I do and he has more power than I do and he wants better for me than even I want. Jesus is the king that I need. So we're going to start in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, and I'm just going to give you eight spokes, if you will, on this wagon wheel. The first spoke we're going to set up is in the first three verses. It goes like this. Jesus is worth more than everything I am. What does belief look like? If Jesus is the king, if he is the Christ, then what does belief look like? What we're going to find in these first three verses is that Jesus is worth more than everything I am. Chapter 12, verse 1, John writes, six days before the Passover. Let me give a little bit of backdrop just so we're clear. This is how we know that the earthly ministry of Jesus takes place over about three and a half years. It's because John's gospel gives us three Passovers and change. Three Passovers, and this is the third. It's six days before Passover. We know that Jesus dies on Passover. So I want you to be immersed in the story. With what's going on here, Jesus, the guiltless, spotless Lamb of God without blemish, will be dead in six days. John absolutely intends for you and I to be sensorily involved and immersed in the story. In six days, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, will be dead. It's the Passover. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany. He's been up 15 miles to the northeast in a little village called Ephraim, which means fruitful. But as Passover draws near, Jesus knows that his time is drawing near. And so he takes the journey 15 miles back down south, and he goes to Bethany. Bethany is two miles to the east of Temple Mount in Jerusalem, down the Kidron Valley, up over the Mount of Olives, and there's Bethany. And Jesus heads there. Where, by the way, John wants us to know, Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. (laughs) John is going to say this in this chapter three times to make sure we get that Lazarus was dead and now he's alive. Lazarus was dead, but now he's alive. Lazarus was dead and now he's alive. This is no parlor trick. This was no stunt. This was no special effect. Jesus said two words and a dead thing lived. A dead thing experiencing rot and decay and decomposition is alive. John wants to make sure we understand that because what kind of a person can do something like that? One who is divine, one who is the king that I need. Verse two, so they gave a dinner for him there. Now, this is in Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. What we're gonna find out is that this is not at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mark 14 and Matthew 26 tell us that this dinner actually takes place at the home of a man named Simon. Now, Luke's gospel, chapter 7, has a different anointing that takes place way up in Galilee by Mary Magdalene. It gets confusing. This is going to take place in Bethany at the home of a man named Simon. But not just any Simon. This man is Simon the leper. So already we're confronted with two characters that are going to be at this dinner feast. We have Lazarus, who was dead, but now he's alive. 
And also we have Simon, who is socially, culturally, ritualistically, ceremonially, religiously dead. He is a leper. He is persona non grata. But Jesus touched him. And his viral righteousness cleansed the leper. (laughs) Jesus did not become unclean. The leper becomes clean. Now that's the kind of person I want to be my king. Simon goes from being Simon the leper to Simon the entertainer. Don't you love that? He's now showing hospitality. He which was an outcast. You didn't want to look at him. You didn't want to be near him. You didn't want to, he would have to walk on the other side of the street and scream, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine the horror and the shame and the anguish? And now he has God incarnate in his house, serving him hummus. This is a good day. So they gave a dinner for him there at Simon the leper's house. Martha served. She's a busy little beaver, is this Martha. She loves by doing. And Lazarus was one of these remaining, reclining with him at table. So I want you to be in the story. The Jewish people in this day and age would sit what they called a triclinium. It's a low, long, wide table. And you would lean on your left elbow with your shoulder up against the table and your feet would be back out this way and you would lean there and someone else would lean right back up against you here and you would reach forward, grab your bread, dip it in whatever sauce and you would eat. So Lazarus, who was dead, who had experienced decomposition, decay, and nastiness, but had also experienced being in paradise, is now back and this dead guy is experiencing fellowship with Jesus. Because by the way, that's the plan. Dead people brought to life have fellowship with Jesus and they experience and enjoy him forever. Incidentally, I think this is a snapshot. This is a glimpse of the great grand wedding feast of Revelation 19 when all those whom Jesus has raised will have a wonderful feast with him. So there's Lazarus in verse 2, reclining with Jesus at the table. So we've got Simon the leper, we've got Martha, we've got Lazarus, we've got Jesus. Where's Mary? The first word of verse 3 is actually therefore. Now, i got to be transparent here. Every time I've opened this passage this week in preparation, I've started crying. It just wrecks me. And I'm going to try to get through this, but I just want you to grasp the scene here. Mary, therefore. Mary, therefore what? She's in the home of a leper made clean. Her brother was dead four days in the grave, and yet here he is having a snack with Jesus. Therefore, It's more than she can take. She's utterly and emotionally overwhelmed. It just grabs her. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. You've probably heard this. I don't want to make too much of it, but this is a really big deal. We'll find out later that this ointment made of nard uh, would have contained myrrh, which was used for embalming and for spicing a body to cover the stench of death. We're talking about a pound. The Greek word is litra. That is 11 and a half fluid ounces. That's the same amount as a Coke can. Not a soda can, not a pop can. It's a Coke can, okay? I don't know what those other things are. It's about the same volume as a Coke can. It is wildly expensive. It's about the value of a year's 
wage. I don't know what you make in a year, don't care, but whatever you make in a year, this stuff costs a year's wage. Let's say the average mean, let's just call it $60,000, and Matthew and Mark tells it's in an alabaster flask. This comes from a resin from northern India only, only place you can get it, fabulously expensive, incredibly rare, and you were supposed to have cut it 50 to 1 with water. 50 parts water, one part nard. It would literally last you an entire lifetime. Anybody that wore this stuff was recognized. That's a woman of means, of influence, of affluence. And as she walked around town, people would go, oh, wow, that lady's somebody. That lady's something. That lady's got it all together. That lady is wearing the most expensive perfume available. It's trucked in from northern India. Now, she's got it in a sealed alabaster flask. More than likely, the text doesn't tell us this, but we know culturally the normative practice was this kind of possession. Let's say it's worth $60,000, maybe $100,000 in our currency. She's holding this back, and it's going to be her dowry to give to her future husband. Mary's not married. This is going to be the thing, because apparently her parents are gone, that she's going to give as a gift to her husband's family. This is her security. This is her hope. This is her wealth moving forward. It's all that she has, and then we're going to see it's all that she is. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us that she also poured it on his head, But Matthew and Mark are giving a chronological narrative of the life of Jesus. It's not what John's doing. John's giving a theological summary and a survey of the ministry of Jesus. Now, if you are a Roman slave, your master can command you to do anything he wants. Anything, and you have to do it, except one. Your master cannot command you to clean his feet because that's low and disgusting and dirty. No slave is required by law to obey that command from their master. And here we see Mary, a woman of influence and means, anoints the dirty, dry, dusty feet of a Jewish carpenter. It's a scandal. She anoints the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, I can't make a big enough deal about this, but I'm certainly going to try. A woman's hair represented her glory. It was all of her resplendence. For a Semitic woman in the Near East and in the Middle East, her hair was a picture of all of her worth, majesty, and glory. This is why even today, Semitic women, for the most part, keep their heads covered, their hair out of sight. It is a glory, a resplendence that is reserved only for her husband. So you'll see women wearing hijabs or in extreme cases burqas because no one can see their hair except their husband. It is an intimate um, vision reserved for the one with whom they are in marriage covenant. And Mary takes down her hair. The gasps would have been audible. And she goes back away from the table and she begins to wipe his feet with all that she is, her glory, wiping this man's feet. John wants you to be in the story, and here's how I know this. Listen to what he says, end of verse 3. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is how you know John was there. It's like he's still got the smell in his nostrils. I want you to think about 11 and a half ounces of 50 to 1 concentrate poured out in an instant. All of it. It's gone. 
You have to know that for the rest of his life, Simon the entertainer would come home and go, ah, he was here. Never got past the scent of the Christ and what this woman's worship accomplished. I also want to remind you, this is at the home of Simon the leper, now Simon the entertainer. This is not at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Why is that a big deal? Because Mary doesn't live here. It means Mary brought this with her, planning to worship, which is totally convicting. Because I wonder, how often do I show up to be with you, God's people, in God's spirit, and I really have no practical plan to worship whatsoever? This woman plans to show up with all that she has and all that she is to pour it out on the lowest part of this man. What is John showing us? John is showing us this is belief. When she takes the entirety of her person and she says, I have no other hope for the future. I have no care of the past. All of me, all that I have, all that I am is all on your feet. What's John saying? Jesus is worth more than all that I am because Jesus is the king that I need. And those who get that, get this. See, a Christian is someone who understands that only Jesus is acceptable to God. A Christian is someone who recognizes there's only one ever who has been actually acceptable before a holy God, and it is Jesus. And if I'm going to be found acceptable before a holy God, I have to be found in Christ. And if that's the case, and it is, then he is worthy to be my king. Jesus is the king I need. Jesus is worth more than I am, than everything I am. Well, that leads us to the next spoke on the wheel, beginning in verse 4. Jesus is worth more than everything I can do. Not only is he worth more than all that I am, he is worth more than everything I can do. Verse 4, but, oh, I wish that wasn't there. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, John has no issue whatsoever with calling out his former colleague, disciple, Judas, as a betrayer and a traitor. Here John sits 50 years later after the resurrection of Jesus, remembering back, and I think John still has the scent in his nostrils as well, and he remembers that guy, Judas. After seeing Mary pour out this opulence, Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. What Zechariah says is the price of an ox-gored slave. Not even a full slave, one who was wounded walking around with a limp. That's what Judas makes on the Jesus deal. Judas says, verse 5, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, a year's wage, and given to the poor? Hey, I have a cause here. Actually, he didn't, but he was sir sounding like he had a cause. Judas was buzzword compliant. He could speak the speak like anybody else. He tries to social justice juke, and Jesus will have none of it. Verse 6, he said this, not because he cared about the poor. John's going, he didn't care about the poor. He was a dirtbag. He was a thief. And because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Why does John tell us this? Because Jesus is sovereign. And he is never for a moment threatened by Judas. So much so, he even puts this thief knowingly in charge of the finances. Jesus is in charge of the whole shooting match. Now, verse 7 is a little bit tricky to translate. My ESV translates it like this. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, Matthew and Mark 
put a little bit extra in there and they say, leave her alone because from now on, anytime the gospel is preached, she will be remembered. Why does Matthew and Mark record that? Because that's what belief looks like. I think in John's telling, there's a little bit better of a translation. I think it's better translated like this. Jesus said, leave her alone. She intended it for the day of my burial. Doesn't change the doctrine too much. Not that big of a deal. Either one could be right. I think in context, that's better. Leave her alone. This was intended for my burial. In other words, Mary is the only one that understands that Messiah must die. All the disciples were like, okay, when's he going to do the thing? You know, the thing, and he's going to be unleashed, and the thing. When's that going to happen? Mary recognizes that this good, wholesome rabbi, master, teacher, Messiah, God himself, was going to have to experience death. Verse 8, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Is Jesus being cold and callous here? No, of course not. He's saying your cause must never, ever, ever go before the Christ. Anytime our causes are more important to us than our Christ, we've missed the point because Jesus is more important than everything I can do. Next spoke on the wheel. Number three, beginning in verse nine, the kingdom campaign carries conflict. If Jesus is the king that I need, then there are going to be those who disagree and who want to stop it. Verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Oh, by the way, in case you hadn't known, this is the one that, he, that Jesus raised from the dead. So a Jewish man is required to go to Jerusalem at least three times a year. One of those times is for Passover. So Jerusalem is jam-packed, it's at fever pitch, and they hear that Jesus has come south, now he's in Bethany, and so a lot of them leave Jerusalem and go down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, into Bethany. They want to see Lazarus, they want to see this spectacle. So, verse 10, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. <laughs> That's a bad day. Like, hold on a second, you're supposed to be my shepherd, you're supposed to be my leaders, my helpers, and you're trying to kill me? For What? for being alive? That wasn't my call. And by the way, that was my call, not Mike Hall, just to be clear there. <laughs> Lazarus, by the way, this is amazing logic. It's, I mean, they knew that Lazarus was dead and that Lazarus was alive and that Jesus was the cause of it. He was dead, Jesus made him alive. Let's kill him again. As if Jesus couldn't go, nope, whoop, come back out. Lazarus is going, are you serious? For real, this is getting old. And here we go again. I mean, this is not, they're not thinking logically. He's already raised him to walk once. You can kill him. Jesus can bring him back. They're not thinking about that. They are desperate because they are losing their own kingdom, which was made out of wet tissue paper anyway. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see, that's how it happens. People who are dead and made alive are the greatest declaration of the gospel. You'll never see angels preaching the gospel. They should, they'd be great at it, but not as good as someone who was dead and made alive. God's great demonstration of the gospel is you, dead, made alive. You, blind, now see. You, paralyzed, now up and free and walking around. This is Lazarus. Because of Lazarus, people were believing. But the kingdom campaign carries conflict. Number four spoke on the wheel. Begins in verse 12. The kingdom is already and not yet. 
The kingdom is already and not yet. The next day, verse 12, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that's Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now this will be on a Sunday. This is going to be Palm Sunday. We will actually celebrate Palm Sunday on April 14th. But for now, just because this is where we are in the text, stick with me. We're going to spend the rest of March and early April in an upper room with Jesus. For right now, this is Palm Sunday in our text. Verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Oh, there's so much going on here. For starters, there are no palm trees nor palm branches anywhere between Temple Mount and Bethany. Nowhere. Not then, not now. It's all olive groves. So what is this telling us? They came prepared and planning to install this man as their king. They brought palm branches with them from someplace else. There are no palm branches anywhere there. They had this totally mapped out in advance. And why palm branches? Well, it's not just that it's pretty foliage. It means a great deal. 165 years earlier, the Maccabees had kicked out the Greeks from Jerusalem. Antiochus Epiphanes is defeated by Judah Maccabees, Judah the Hammer. And they coin new Israeli coins. And the emblem that they put on the coin is the palm branch. It is the symbol of their freedom. It is the symbol that their God wins. The palm branch represented the fact that God would bring water, which would produce bounty and prosperity in the land, as represented by the palm branch. So them waving palm branches is equivalent of a 4th of July parade and us waving American flags. This is their way of saying, you are going to be our king. Anybody that can raise dead people, feed thousands, calm storms, walk on water, you're our guy. And they quote Psalm 118 as a biblical affirmation of what they want. They quote Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Hoshiana, God save, God save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's really good, right? Because, I mean, they're quoting scripture. Interestingly, the name Isaiah and Hosea and Joshua and Jesus, Yeshua, is all the same word in Hebrew. God save, God save. So they're saying, Hoshiana, God help, God rescue, God save. And they quote verses 25 and 26. And there they stop. Psalm 118 verse 27 says something a little bit different. If they had just kept reading the text, they would have understood. Because Psalm 118 verse 27 says, and the sacrifice must be bound to the altar. Oh, he is the one who will save, but he will do so by becoming that which must die for the sake of the people. They didn't quote that part. They didn't like that part. They didn't understand that part. And we'll see that made more clear here in just a moment. Jesus comes in and he inaugurates, he instigates, he initiates the kingdom, but it is not fulfilled. It's already and it's not yet. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. And then John's going to quote Zechariah 9.9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Not even a donkey, a baby donkey. Looks kind of silly, and this donkey was probably struggling a good bit. What's going on here? Well, this is what King David would ride, which is a donkey, because he's not on a charging war horse. The king has no need of hurry. He does not run. He walks slowly and calmly. And Zechariah 9.9 says that Messiah will enter on the colt of a donkey. So Jesus is sovereignly fulfilling prophecy, but he is not coming in on a charging war steed. Oh, he will. 
That's Revelation 19. The next time we see Jesus, he will be riding a beast of burden, but it'll be a giant white war horse. Different advent, different coming. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, that is after his resurrection and ascension, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, just in case you had forgotten, this Lazarus, he was dead, now he's alive, and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. Yep, there's Lazarus. Lazarus, which means God is my help. There he is, he was dead, he stinketh, but now he's alive. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. They're still just there for the spectacle. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gathering nothing. Look, and ironically, the whole world has gone after him. Jesus inaugurates, instigates, initiates the kingdom. But it's not fully realized yet. There is a great grand parenthesis. Well, next spoke on the wheel begins in verse 20, and it goes like this. Jesus is the king of the Jews and Gentiles. This is very good news for most of us. Jesus is the king of the Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, Gentiles. These are sebamine, means they are Gentile God-fearers. They are seekers of the truth, and they believe that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the holder of that truth. And so they have come to Jerusalem to worship, to participate in the Passover. Watch what happens here. So these came to Philip. These Greek guys come to Philip. Why? Of all the disciples, Philip is the only one with a Greek name. All the other disciples have uh, Jewish names. It is thought more than likely that Philip probably has a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Philip means lover of horses. The Jews hated horses. They didn't have anything to do with horses. So this guy is probably at least a half Greek, half Jew. And he probably looked a little bit different. He's from Bethsaida up in Galilee. And these Greek worshipers find Philip. They come to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. There's apparently these two sort of served as like the screening committee. You can see Jesus. No, not you. Yes, you. Let's see your hand stamp. Good, you got a bracelet. You can come in. That kind of deal. They're bouncers, all right? They said, hey, there's some Greek guys that want to see Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. (laughs) So Philip and Andrew are like, okay, awesome. Uh, So so can they come, shut up, shut up. Can they come in or not? I don't, they don't have any idea. So Jesus is going to continue. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Ah, see, the path to life is through death. For wheat to flourish, the seed must die. Jesus is saying, I am that seed. I will go into the earth, I will die. But from my death, life and much more fruit exponentially will be produced. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And Philip and Andrew are going, man, that's great, but we got two Greeks that want to see you. Can they come in? They miss it. But Jesus' answer is not merely yes. It is, oh, absolutely yes. 
Yes, the Greeks can come. Yes, the Gentiles can come. I am the king of the Jews, but I am also the king of the Gentiles. I am going to the earth as seed, but I will produce much fruit and bounty, and they are a part of it. Yes, yes, by all means, bring the Greeks, because Jesus is the king of the Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 27, next spoke on the wheel. Jesus is a king willing to die. It's good to have a good king, but a king who's willing to die for his subjects, that's a different thing entirely. Jesus is going to tell us that he is a king who is willing to die. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. It finally hits him. The enormity of the moment crashes in on him and realizes he's about to bear the brunt of as much punishment as man can muster and as much wrath as God can produce. It's all going to fall on him because he is going to become sin itself. Now is my soul troubled. What am I supposed to say? Father, save me from this hour? No, no, no. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. I will finish the mission. Father, glorify your name. Watch this. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And it sounded like thunder. Now, when did, when did God glorify his name already? Well, pretty much from eternity past and every day thence. But specifically, at the baptism of Jesus, Jesus goes into the water, he emerges, and the voice of God said, that's my son. It's him. He is God of God, light of light, stuff of stuff. We are the same essence. I love him. I am proud of him. Do what he says. He's glorified. And he will be glorified again at the cross when all of his wrath is poured out on his son. And Jesus explains, verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus didn't need the encouragement or the attaboy or the affirmation. He's always in perfect contact and connection and communion with the Father. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Those who are kingless, who have been ruled by a vile king, the king of this age, Satan, he is now cast out. By my death, Jesus will say, I am going to defang and declaw the enemies, what Paul says in Colossians 2. The weapon of mass destruction is rendered null and void. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I've got to stop here for a second. Jesus is going to tell them that his death has to be through crucifixion, not through stoning which is why Jesus was never afraid when they all picked up rocks to stone him. It's not how he's going to die. Deuteronomy 27 says, Cursed is he who is hanged on a tree. The worst crime you could commit in Israel resulted in becoming a curse, and they would hang you on a tree. Jesus knows that he will become the curse to redeem us from the curse, Galatians 3. He has to die by crucifixion. And when I am lifted up, this is not talking about his ascension, it's talking about his crucifixion, I will, and my translation says, draw all men to myself, bad translation. I will drag. It's the same verb used when Peter pulls in his fishing net. He drags it to shore. When I am lifted up, I will drag all people. But it's not every single human being, quite obviously. It's all peoples. It's Gentiles, Jews, males, females, Greeks, slaves, free, everything. I will drag them. That's how this will happen. That's how salvation will occur. I will be lifted up and I will drag people to myself, is what Jesus says in verse 32. He said this, verse 33, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. 
So the crowd answered him, hold on a second. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Now they want to argue scripture because they've heard Jesus refer to himself as the son of man several times. They know that the son of man is a title that comes from Daniel chapter seven. In Daniel chapter seven, Daniel has a vision and he sees the ancient of days, God himself. And he is approached by one who is the son of man. The only one who can approach God is the son of man. In the ancient of days, God gives him the scroll of eternity and says, you are it. The son of man, of course, lives forever. Why are you saying that you're going to die? Are you the son of man or not? Jesus answers them, verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Oh, it's me, but I'm about to be extinguished. Look while you can. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. I am willing to impart my glory to you if you will simply release your own. Well, we're going to get our fifth spoke on the wheel beginning in verse 36b. It goes like this. Jesus is the king in Isaiah 6. We haven't had a nuclear bomb dropped on us in this text in quite some time, and so John's going to drop one on us here in the middle of chapter 12. This is an absolutely staggering passage, so let me get right to it. Verse 36b, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. I don't know how he does that. He just, he's gone. It's over. He's done, he's done, he just leaves. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still not believe in him. Ah, this is sort of vexing to me. How could they not believe? They don't believe because their hearts are hardened. He's going to explain. Verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then John's going to quote from the book of Isaiah. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Let me explain what's going on here. John is quoting from Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, it starts off, in the year King Uzziah died. This is 750 years before Jesus. Isaiah has just lost his king. He's experiencing kinglessness. Uzziah is dead. And God transports Isaiah to the throne room of heaven. And he sees God himself, high and lifted up, seated on the throne of majesty. And the seraphim are flying all around the throne, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And they finish that verse and they sing it again and again and again. And Isaiah says, whoa, I'm coming apart here. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I need atonement. And so an angel flies to the altar, picks up a burning coal and touches Isaiah's lips. That must have hurt, but he is atoned for. And then God asks Isaiah, here am I, who will go for me? Isaiah looks around and goes, uh, seeing how I'm the only one here, I guess here am I, send me. God says, great. No one's going to listen. No one's going to see. Your ministry is going to be a miserable failure. Now go get them. Now would you still go? Having seen what Isaiah saw, it wasn't even a choice because he experienced the presence of God. Of 
course he went. And that is fulfilled fully and utterly here in John 12. Listen to what John says next. John 12, I don't know if you're the kind of person that does this, but if not, become the kind of person that does this. Asterisk, underline, smiley face emoji, prick some blood, put it on. John 12, 41 is a nuclear bomb. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. By the way, the he and him is Jesus. In other words, what John just told us is that who Isaiah sees in Isaiah chapter 6 is Jesus. It is the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus is Yahweh. He's not merely a piece of God broken off and sent to earth. He's not a good rabbi, a nice moral fellow. He is Yahweh. And the one that Isaiah sees is now in the flesh walking around. The one that Isaiah sees high and lifted up, surrounded by seraphim, singing the holy, 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 the one who makes the entire earth tremble, whose robe fills the temple, in six days will be nailed naked to a piece of wood. It's astonishing what John's telling us here. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, They're starting to get it. The penny's about to drop. But this world creeps right back in, the thorny soil, if you will. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Are you kidding me? But no, because I know this feeling. So often I would rather have near proximate acclaim from people than that which comes from God. Even though this is fleeting, it lasts, mm, I don't know, about a text message long, but that which comes from God is eternal. These people mortgaged their eternity because they wanted the acclaim of people more than that of God. So it's been said like this, you can have shame or glory. Will you have shame now and glory later or glory now and shame forever? Choose wisely. These folks did not choose wisely. Last spoke on the wheel, since Jesus is the king I need, the eighth and final support spoke in the wheel goes like this. Jesus is a king that saves. He's not just a regal ruler of sovereign strength. He is a king that saves. Verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. I'm here on God's business. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. Jesus' first advent is about salvation. His second advent, make no mistake, will be about judgment. And all those who reject are themselves responsible. What more could God do? The one, verse 48, who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. This is God's mission. It's not like Jesus loves me this, I know, but God sure is ticked off. Oh no, it is God's plan and purpose to rescue for himself a people. Verse 50, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is God's word. Our biggest issue is kinglessness. But Jesus is the king that I need. 
My hope, my prayer is that you and I have read now John chapter 12 in its entirety, understanding the defense that Jesus is the Christ, that you and I will walk out if you're going, wow, practically and very pointedly, purposefully, Jesus is the king I need. And that we will, in a very real sense, surrender all authority and control to him. So let me say, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, again, I don't think it's an accident that you're here, but I invite you to believe against all perhaps rational understanding that this man truly is God, he is king, and he loves you. He desires to recline at table with you, one dead made alive for all eternity. And so I invite you to believe. For the rest of you who are believers, I encourage you to look again at the example of Mary who takes all that she has, all that she is, and she plants it squarely on the truth that Jesus is the king that she needs and that ever increasingly your belief would flourish. Because what you need is a king, and Jesus is that king. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you that you are good. We thank you for the universal reign of Christ. May he reign in every heart as well this morning. If there is someone here this morning, Father, that does not know you, I pray that you will move and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son. For the rest of us, Father, would you encourage us all anew of what belief looks like, putting our full weight, not hedging our bets, not looking back, but trusting that Jesus is the king that we need. May it be exactly as I have prayed or even better, God. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for being with us this morning. I want to remind you that after every service, we've got someone here at the front who's going to be available to pray with you. If there's something you want to pray about that you heard this morning or something that's going on in your life, I believe Jamin is going to be here this morning. Jamin may not have known that, but Jamin's going to be here at the front. We'd love to pray with you. So let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction. On your way up, I want to remind you that the Abide Conference, ladies, is this Thursday at 7. Please plan on being here. Now, May our God who brought back from the dead, not just Lazarus, Jesus, may he equip you for doing every good work and may you do it. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.